What's up, Stitches? Welcome to episode 9 of season 3 of So What, aka the holiday season special. I am your host, Isabella Rosner, and today I will be taking you on a teeny tiny but hopefully entertaining tour of family history through needlework. Also, when I started writing this, the episode was teeny tiny, and now it's more of a normal length, but I'm still gonna call it teeny tiny. Anyway, I thought the theme of family history through needlework would be a good theme for the festive season when lots of people spend time with their families. And when I say families, I don't just mean people related by blood. Chosen families are families too, of course, as are friends, as are whoever else you want to be in your family. This is an episode that celebrates communities and lineages and legacies, and the winter holiday season seems to be a good time to think about all that. The subject of family history through needlework was suggested by So What listener Estelle, so thank you Estelle! Before I delve into the subject at hand, several things to go over. One, social media. You know it, we're here. As always, images of what I discuss in this episode are on SoWhatPodcast.com and at SoWhatPodcast on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Two, this episode, like every other episode this season, is a mini-episode, so expect something a bit shorter and sweeter. Love to provide historic needlework content, but also to give you all and myself a chance to actually celebrate and take a well-needed rest, because I think we all really need some rest right now. Three, this episode is going to be a speedy tour through a bunch of different types of stitching from a bunch of different time periods, all loosely strung together by the theme of family history and needlework. Let's go! So, while this is going to be an absolutely wild ride through a bunch of different places and things, all of this stuff can be roughly separated into two groups. First are the pieces in which a maker explicitly records their family's history, whether it be multiple generations or just one. In these examples, bringing family into needlework is the maker's choice. Second are the objects, where there is no family history in the object itself, but rather in how the objects have been passed down over time or rediscovered. So the family history isn't stitched into the object itself, but is present alongside the object due to how it has traversed the past decades and centuries. I'll start with the first one, the more straightforward one, first. Perhaps the most obvious example of telling family histories through needlework is family record samplers. Family record samplers were especially popular in America in the 19th century. According to the Benton County Historical Society, quote, In the early to mid-19th century, it was popular in certain regions of the country to document a family's genealogy. The tools and materials varied calligraphy on paper, carvings in wood, or embroidered stitches on fabric or paper. The documents, regardless of the medium used, were often labeled with words like genealogy, family record, family tree, or family register. Family record samplers were especially popular in New England, where regional variations have resulted in a variety of designs and layouts. One of the most common was to stitch birth, marriage, and death dates in columns, starting with the sampler maker's parents and then listing the children in the order of their birth. The intention was to add dates over time, as individuals married and died, but these family record samplers frequently remain incomplete. 
Particularly poignant on these samplers is seeing the names and dates of children who died young, often within their first two years, end quote. There are examples of family record samplers that survive from outside that time and place from before the 19th century and beyond America, but that's where it really hit its peak. I don't know if there's anything scholarly being published or has been published about the reason behind this trend, but I think it may have something to do with this desire to feel like part of a lineage, part of a community in this burgeoning country the burgeoning country in question being the United States, which had just been founded like 25 years earlier-ish. I think there's also some pride there. This idea that sampler makers are saying something like, this is me and my family. We are here in this new land and we are surviving and thriving. But I could be totally wrong. They could be not saying that at all. One of my favorite family record samplers is one at the Met, stitched by Julia Ann Fitch in Hatfield, Massachusetts in 1807. On it, Julia stitches the birth dates of her parents and siblings, as well as the death dates of her siblings who died in childhood. At the bottom, tucked amongst the names and birth dates of her siblings, is the birth and death information of George Washington and the date American independence was declared. I love that, that this hugely important American person and this life-changing American event are tucked into this needleworked familial artifact. It shows that for girls stitching these family record samplers, their families and their nation were intimately tied and of equal importance. My favorite example of a family record sampler made outside of the United States is one currently at Whitney Antiques, and it's super poignant, oh my god. It was made in 1802 by Mary Denham, aged 10, at Mrs. Shaw's school on St. Oban Street. I'm assuming it's Oban, A-U-B-Y-N. I'm not from England. I don't know. On St. Oban Street in Devonport, Plymouth. Mary stitched the initials or full names of all of her siblings, children of Henry and Elizabeth Denham, as well as their birth or baptism dates. 22 children are listed on the sampler, so clearly not all of them are the children of Henry and Elizabeth, I would think and hope, for the sake of Elizabeth's body. Unfortunately, and yet not surprisingly for the 19th century, several of the children died very young, and their burial places are listed. What makes this sampler super poignant is that amongst the delicate embroidery are tiny watercolored portraits of children. I'm assuming that these are Mary's depictions of her siblings. It's not clear if they are depictions of her siblings who lived or those who passed away, but it is amazing and slightly emotionally overwhelming to see the childhood renderings of other children, painted with such delicacy and minuteness and care. It makes your heart swell and feels like a punch in the gut at the same time. Mary Sampler is one of those instances where the lives of these girls, the girls who stitched, feel so close, so near us, so rich and complex and dynamic. It gets me good, clearly. It is, like, unlike anything else I've ever seen, really. Mary Sampler leads well into the next big trend in historic familial needlework, according to me, which is mourning embroidery. Not all pieces of mourning embroidery, which hit the big time in the 19th century, again primarily in America, include family names, but sometimes they do. 
Sometimes girls stitched morning pictures in honor of a specific family member. So tucked amongst the typical morning embroidery imagery of a sad lady underneath a weeping willow tree next to an urn is a family member's name. For example, an 1816 sampler at the National Museum of American History, stitched by Susan Wynn, features on the urn's plinth an inscription which reads, quote, Sacred to the memory of my dear sister, Caroline Wynne. Sweet be thy sepulchral rest, sister dear, supremely blessed. May the ties which us unite be renewed in realms of light, erected by Susan Wynne, end quote. Records tell us that Susan's sister, Caroline, died in infancy in 1806. Susan moved from Baltimore, Maryland to Lilitz, Pennsylvania for her education, and hundreds of miles away and 10 years on, she still dedicates her embroidery to her sister who never got to grow up. By commemorating Caroline in her stitching, Susan gives her a chance to live, to be remembered. The survival of needlework that involves including family members results in us modern viewers remembering and learning about and getting to know not only stitchers who are otherwise absent from the historical record, but also the siblings they grew up with and the parents or others who raised them, allowing us to imagine these girls not in isolation, but in their homes, at their dinner tables, in their cramped or spacious bedrooms, etc., etc., while family record samplers and morning embroideries are the most frequent examples of stitching that involves family trees and multiple generations, there are also samplers that include family names more casually. I'm thinking of samplers made under the tutelage of Elizabeth and Anne Marsh in 18th century Philadelphia. A lot of my PhD is about that delightful mother-daughter duo. I love them, you love them, we all love them! Anyway, many of the samplers made by their students include lists of family members. They don't list dates or locations, but simply names. My research has shown that these lists include parents, siblings, aunts and uncles, cousins, grandparents, and beyond. I think the inclusion of these family lists in the Marsh samplers is similar to the 19th century American family record samplers in that desire to establish a strong American familial lineage, but I also think that in this instance there is a desire to illustrate a girl's pure Quaker heritage. Not only are her parents Quaker, but so is her extended family. In a city powered by Quakers and at a school led by a Quaker mother and daughter, I think it was important for girls from elite Quaker families to demonstrate that they were well within the bounds of endogamy and religious purity. Not all of the Marsh School students were Quaker, but I do think that there is that additional factor for those girls who were. Other samplers mentioned parents or other generations on a smaller scale. One of my favorite examples is a 1693 sampler by Mary Best, now in the collection of Colonial Williamsburg. On it, she stitched, quote, John Best, my father dear, paid for this that I did here, end quote. Mary is clearly writing her father's name for different purposes than the other sampler makers I've talked about in this episode, but it does still put Mary in a larger familial context. We know not just her name and when she stitched her sampler, but also her father's name and the fact that he was able to pay for his daughter's thorough education. Mary is not just a lone stitcher, she is also her father's daughter. 
Stitching family trees or records is not just limited to samplers, as I'm sure you well know. A good example that's not embroidery are the quilts of G's Bend. I was lucky enough to interview two G's Bend quilters in season two, which was such a treat and an honor. G's Bend quilts are stitched by the women who live in G's Bend, Alabama, many of whom can trace their ancestry back to enslaved people who lived on the plantation in the region in the 19th century. The quilts are some of the most famous and important quilts in American history, and many G's Bend residents are still producing stunning pieces. While G's Bend quilts do not have stitched on them the names of generations of G's Bend quilters, they are very much connected to familial needlework because the quilts are the product of a many generations long stitching tradition. This family tree of sorts is made of generations of women stitching individual objects in a communal style. Delight! One of, I think, the most important examples of familial stitching that is neither sampler nor quilt is an object Emily Wells brought up earlier this season. Season of the podcast, not season of the year. Check it out, my interview with Emily Wells. Anyway, the object is called Ashley's Sack. Ashley's sack is a mid-1800s cloth sack on which is embroidered, quote, My great-grandmother Rose, mother of Ashley, gave her this sack when she was sold at age nine in South Carolina. It held a tattered dress, three handfuls of pecans, a braid of Rose's hair. Told her it be filled with my love always. She never saw her again. Ashley is my grandmother. Ruth Middleton, 1920. End quote. This object, which is so brutal and so poignant, is such an important example of familial stitching. But in this instance, the bag was originally bare. Its family history was added later, and it needed to be added later, since it's not like Rose had time to stitch her story for her daughter, Ashley. Every other stitcher I've talked about in this episode thus far has had the time, resources, education, and privilege to be able to stitch their family histories onto fabric. Rose did not have that opportunity, so her great-granddaughter Ruth did it for her. The family history present in this sack would have disappeared, gone forever and never shared, if Ruth had not stitched upon it. Ashley's sack is an important reminder of whose stories we're usually hearing when we look at historic needlework. As you and I both know, it's not usually stories like Rose or Ashley's. The time and resources needed to study and think about historic needlework puts us in a privileged position, and most of the time that study is of pieces that were made by girls and women who themselves were privileged. The vast majority of needlework that has connections to familial lines and legacies was made by a very small, very specific group of people. And now on to the second, smaller group of objects, the ones that have gained familial significance over time. Family heirlooms, the samplers or needleworked pictures or quilts or whatever else that has been passed down to you, falls into this category because it is your family history. Tied up in its value is its personal value, and the fact that it was made by your ancestor. Now, I think most people don't have samplers or other needleworked objects, made by, however, many great-grandmothers, chilling in their attics or on display in their homes. I don't. I've always wanted that, but I don't have any of that. 
But for those of you who do, these objects don't need to have family records or trees stitched onto them to be intimately tied to family history, of course. An object still tells a family history because it has been passed down, generation to generation, to you. The family history lies in its journey and history of ownership, not in its content. This same idea of family history through an object's journey through many generations of a family leads us to some iconic suites of needlework. And when I say suites, I mean a big, many-part collection of stuff. It's not just one object, but a whole series of related things. Martha Edlin's suite from the 1660s and 70s, which I've talked about on the pod at least a few times, was passed down through many generations of female descendants before being given to the Victoria and Albert Museum in the early 20th century. So there are, of course, things like that, an object or multiple objects that have family history tied up in them because of how they moved through time. And in the case of Martha Edlin's stuff, the family tree that emerged through those things being passed down from generation to generation is also to thank for their survival. Not sure if that makes sense. I don't know. I feel like I'm rambling here. But what I'm saying is that Martha Edlin didn't stitch family histories into her objects, but the family history that came after her is the reason why her stuff survives today. There are other suites of needlework like that, too, which have descended through families and survived to give us a really good understanding of an elite English girl's needlework education at a specific point in time. The suite I write about a lot in my PhD thesis, that made by Hannah Downs, is an example. But in the case of the Hannah Downs suite, which is at the V&A as well, the objects inside are also the result of an attention paid to family history. While Edlin's suite is just her own work, Downs's suite includes at least four generations worth of needleworked stuff. Downs's box and needlework, made in the 1680s and 90s, got passed down to subsequent generations who added their own needleworked objects to the collection. What resulted is nearly 200 years of a single family's stitching. That collection of objects shows a family tree not through names stitched on a single textile, but through many different textiles made by many different hands, all united by blood and or marriage. So there you are, a super whistle-stop tour through how family histories and needlework intersect and interact. This is obviously not a definitive list, though. There are also things like album quilts that feature multiple generations of makers, or Victorians making alterations to their early modern ancestors' needlework and beadwork, or groups of friends or communities making quilts to be auctioned off for charity. There are also things like the AIDS Memorial Quilt, where friends and family members commemorated their loved ones who fought AIDS and in the process created an extended family tree of sorts, made of friends, family members, and strangers brought together into a many-branched network. Because, like I said at the beginning of the episode, you don't need to be connected to someone by blood or marriage to be family. Family is what you make of it. It can be any community you want to be a part of or that you're part of, naturally. What is so cool about finding familial records or networks or connections in historic needlework is that it adds such rich context to a stitcher's story. 
This person, decades or centuries ago, obviously didn't stitch this sampler, quilt, needleworked picture, or whatever else in a vacuum. She stitched it as a memorial to a sibling, a record of a past family event, or because a family member could pay for her education. These stitchers did not exist alone. They were part of complicated, loving, confusing, frustrating, joyful, cozy families, just like we are. Familial stitching helps us remember that though when we look at a piece of needlework, it's usually the work of just one person, there was a whole community of people behind the scenes, the family members, friends, and networks that maker was a part of. None of us are ever truly alone. The company we keep is present in every stitch. And on that saccharine note, that's it from me for this 2021 holiday special. I hope that wherever you are and whatever you're doing, this period is a cozy and comforting one. Now go out and stitch some stories and go try to find your great-great-grandmother's sampler in the attic. Bye! Thank you.